All right, let's get going. Good to see everyone here. Um, really good to see you all. Um, I had said last week that I didn't want to teach um, in this format with a mask on because I was worried what it would do to the experience of people who are calling in. And I would be interested to hear later on um, how it is for you. I hope it's okay. But, um, but one reason, um, well, there are two reasons why uh, I decided to just go for it and see how it feels. And the first is because I so much loved being present with people last week that there's a little bit of selfishness um, involved. But there are also, I think, a number of people in the room tonight and there, as there were last Tuesday who um, uh, just um, are not interested in doing the Zoom thing and I think are coming to this but wouldn't come to a Zoom thing. So, so that also is a, is a pull on me that I want to make this, um, this, this class more accessible to people. And um, so anyway, um, I hope this is okay. This sounds okay. I'll try to be maybe a little bit more expressive <laughs> than I would be with my eyes, <laughs> um, my eyebrows. Can you see me raising one eyebrow? Um, and um, in any case, we spent half the time with our eyes closed anyway. So <laughs> I hope it will be okay. Anyways, very good to see you all. So um, the topic tonight is um, working on those moments when we judge things as pleasant or unpleasant, when we, um, when we have a feeling that we like or dislike something, or and that, that's really the essence of what we're talking about. Sometimes it can blur into when we think something is good or bad. I mean, they're obviously connected, but there's also subtle differences between saying something is pleasant or unpleasant and something's good or bad. Um, so, and I think one of the things that I tried to do building on last week is to um, convey a sense of the subtleties of the various ways we discriminate in the Buddhist sense, not discriminate in the sense of um, discriminating against other people, like, you know, for, for race or gender, but actually just the way that we carve up our experience, we categorize it into boxes. And often boxes that have value judgments added onto them um, that make us want certain things and make us want to push away other things. And that, as I discussed last week, is the source of suffering. Um, so you would think that labeling things good or bad or pleasant or unpleasant is just another way of talking about what I talked about last time, which um, is attachment and aversion. Like, um, when we're attached to something, doesn't that mean we think it's pleasant or that, that we like it? And when we have aversion to something, isn't that another, just another way of saying we don't like something or we're labeling it as uh, unpleasant? And I think they are deeply, obviously intertwined, but there are also subtle differences that are worth both noting and picking out in our own experience. Um, and part of what we're going to do tonight is just experiment with that ourselves as we sit to, to sense those moments when we feel, you know, tanha, right? The, so the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is tanha, thirst, craving, desire. 
when we feel that, either the desire to have something or to push it away, right? Aversion and attachment are just two sides of the same thing. Um, but then there's another slight distinction, there's a slight distinction between that and the kind of conceptual judgment that we make that I like this, I don't like that. This is pleasant, this is unpleasant. Um, and so let's just see in our own inner experience whether or not we can notice any differences and what that noting does, if anything. Um, so let's, um, let's just sit for a bit, for a few minutes, settle in. I'll have a few more words to say, and then we'll do a longer sitting where we'll really work with this stuff. So um, please get in a position that you'd like to spend the next few minutes in. It's not gonna be a long sitting yet, but you know, five, seven minutes. Maybe take a few deep breaths to settle into this session, into this moment. And once you've taken a few deep breaths, please let your breath then come to its own natural rhythm, no longer manipulating, no longer breathing deeply, either just letting the breath breathe itself at its own rhythm. And let your awareness settle on the breath wherever you find it most natural to do so. So for some of you that will be in the belly, for some of you in the chest, for others in the nose. And yet for others, you may actually just like to feel the breath as a whole, maybe in the chest and belly at once or the nose, chest and belly. The key is to let your awareness settle on the sensations of the breath, not the idea of the breath, the actual physical sensations of the breath as it comes and goes. And just feel that. And when your thoughts get pulled away, when your awareness gets pulled away from the breath, just take note of that. And maybe take a pause for a second, just relax for a moment. And then gently, leisurely bring your awareness back to the breath. And I say this so that you aren't tightly yoking your awareness to the breath. It's not full of effort, but just a relaxed return to the breath each time your awareness is pulled away.
One thing I'd like to remind you all of is that the breath is a dynamic force. It's always flowing, moving, even if subtly, even if the breaths aren't deep. There's always movement in the breath. And so sometimes we bring our awareness to the breath in a tight, narrow way, as if we're trying to fix our awareness on the breath, hold it tight there. But the breath is actually something that flows. So let your awareness flow too with the breath. The breath is not a stable ground on which to stand, but a wave that we can ride. And let's do a little bit of what we did last week, both as a refresher for those who are here and as an introduction to those who weren't. So there may be moments, there will likely be moments when you notice that your awareness has been pulled away from your breath and you bring your awareness back. And yet there's a kind of tug where your awareness doesn't really want to come back to the breath. It wants to hold onto what you're thinking or feeling. It doesn't want to quite let that thought go, that feeling go. Notice that pull, which is the feeling of attachment. What does it feel like to have the intention of bringing your awareness back to the breath, to the anchor of the breath, yet feeling a kind of magnetic pull or a stickiness to what's carried your mind away. You're not trying to get rid of that attachment. No, not at all. You're just noting it, seeing it, observing its energy, its quality. Conversely, you may notice moments where you have a thought or a feeling or a sensation and the mind wants to push it away. It wants it to go away. It doesn't want it. Feel that energy as well. The energy of aversion. And again, not trying to overcome it or make it go away, but simply observing.
Now, as you continue following your breath and observing the feelings or the quality of aversion or attachment, notice if there are moments in your experience where you can notice yourself judging what you are feeling or thinking or experiencing as something you like or don't like, as you, that you find unpleasant or pleasant. It may not be in exactly those words, but if you notice any judgments, evaluations, like this is good, I like this, or wow, I really don't like this. Just notice that. It may be a thought or a thought infused with a feeling, not clearly just a thought, but with a kind of emotional quality to it. And it may be closely related to the feelings of aversion and attachment you've been noticing. Let's see if there are moments where you think to yourself, I like this, I want more of that, that feels good. Okay, so I'm going to start talking a bit. Feel free to keep sitting if you like, or just um, just listen whatever way feels comfortable to you. We'll be sitting for an extended period shortly. So um, the poem that I read last time, uh, Seng San's Relying on Mind, uh, had a line uh, that said the battling of likes and dislikes is the disease of the mind. Um, and I think one of the most powerful things we can do in our practice is just simply notice how often, how obsessively we categorize our experience as full of things moment by moment sometimes that we like or don't like, that we find pleasant or unpleasant. Um, once you start looking carefully at that dynamic, at that process in your mind, it can become a little kind of 
shocking, a little even scary. Um, there is almost like a little child in us that just, you know, that's just yes, no, you know, just good, bad, I want, I don't want. Um, and it is, as I said earlier, deeply related to the feelings of attachment and aversion. Um, but almost like two different moments of the same kind of dynamic, where sometimes you can see that you're judging something as pleasant or unpleasant, and yet it hasn't yet given rise to the feeling of attachment or aversion. Um, so that sometimes you can see the judgment, and yet maybe the, the, that stickiness isn't quite there, while other times they'll be so intimately bound up that you can't actually tell them apart. They seem like the same thing. And both are good. They're, they're gonna, they're, but the very fact that once in a while you can see them as distinguishable shows that they aren't exactly the same thing. Um, and the more we can see this, like the more we can see attachment aversion as we talked about last week, the less we are under their sway. And it's simple. Um, but also that's a point that can easily be sort of misconstrued uh, into another kind of ideal where we think the point is actually to not have any likes or dislikes or to not have any attachments or aversion. Um, it's only ever to see or to notice as I tried to emphasize repeatedly last week, because as soon as you turn um, the idea that you shouldn't be having likes or dislikes or no attachments or aversion, all you've done is set up another thing that you're craving, another ideal um, that you're striving for. Um, so it's actually not in any way an escape from the dynamic of wanting, but rather just a more sophisticated spiritualized form of it, right? Which for that very reason might actually be much harder to overcome because you then think of it as a worthy ideal. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a psychologist named Willoughby Britton who I mentioned um, a, a couple months ago when we looked at a piece from Harper's uh, about why meditation can be bad for people. And it was about this young woman named Megan who went on a 10 day Goenka retreat of a Poston retreat and had something like a psychotic break. Um, but Willoughby Britton studies these adverse reactions to meditation. And um, one of the examples she uses in her research, which relates to what I'm talking about, is of a, of a middle-aged man who like Megan went on intensive retreat and heard the teacher say at that retreat that the goal of meditation practice is equanimity or one of the goals of meditation practice is equanimity. And in a way it is, okay. Um, but the way that this person interpreted that for himself that you aren't supposed to feel too strongly about anything, you know, um, that you shouldn't feel too good or too bad, that you should somehow manage your internal affective experience so that you are always on an even keel. And what he did was, I think, start to kind of like control himself whenever he started to feel too much positive or negative energy. 
And he actually developed this really terrible disorder where all his emotions got flattened, where he started to feel incapable of feeling anything, even for his family. You know, he's like, um, and Willoughby Britton's point is that this is another example of so many where meditation is just not necessarily a good thing. You know, people can seriously practice and end up with very adverse reactions. I actually understand this story slightly differently. I think it's um, an example of how someone can easily turn um, a piece of a practice principle into a kind of ideal and then carefully manage their psychic experience according to the ideal and then really end up with some distorted inner experience because the ego is so powerful, it can use anything, you know? Um, and it's actually, you know, people often say that I can't meditate. I have so much trouble meditating. I can't control my mind, right? Um, but again and again, I think the truer thing is that we have much too much control of our minds. Um, and the problem is often that we just don't like the form of control we inflict upon ourselves, you know, with our minds. We're always going along the same kind of ruminative paths, you know, the same rabbit holes over and over again. We think that's not having control, but actually it's just our minds having far too much control in a particular direction. So, um, but this gentleman, I think, made the mistake of turning equanimity, this kind of some middle ground between liking and disliking into a positive ideal, which he could then strive for. It was the same thing I was talking about last week when I said, when we turn peace into a state that we're trying to achieve, just by doing that, we've already lost it, right? Um, so equanimity isn't a positive state that we can be achieved. It's just the absence of the kind of pull between uh, being pulled this way and that by our likes and dislikes. So it's not something to go after. The only thing ever to do is look at what is going on right now, where you are and how you are. Anytime you look at your inner experience and judge it against some imagined ideal and try to use your practice to capture the ideal, you are just indulging in another, again, more sophisticated, spiritualized version of the dream of the ego, which is precisely the opposite of what practice is supposed to be about. So what we're gonna do when we sit in a little bit is really just observe what it's like to like and dislike, what it's like to find things pleasant or unpleasant, to feel attached, to feel aversion. It is so not sexy, so not romantic in any way, right? But it's the only way, right? Um, every single moment, because I mean, it's also obviously would be untrue and slight distortion to say, we're not trying to do something by practicing, right? Like obviously we, we are here to try to get somewhere, right? Um, and so like, what, what can, so I just, I'm supposed to be messed up in the way I already am. Do, why do I need to sit in this uncomfortable position for 30 minutes to like experience more of that? But every single moment when we can see 
a moment of liking or disliking, a moment of attachment or aversion, and not be identified with and not give into it. It's a moment where there is more spaciousness around that, more freedom. Over time, the liking, disliking, the attachment, the aversion start to almost, the, the, the language I love is like, it starts to like wear down, starts to almost like wither a bit. It's not something you ever do to it. It happens on its own when you don't feed it with identification. So we can actually make ourselves more invested in these dynamics. Like we can get caught up in our liking and disliking. We can't actually do anything to get rid of it. We can maybe become really good at following the breath so that at certain moments we can exert a kind of willpower and not give in to liking or disliking, but that does nothing itself to liking or disliking and our identification with it. The only thing that will produce the freedom from it is the moment by moment observation. And then over time, it's as if it just, its grip gets softer and you just experience more space where you can see it, but it doesn't have the hold on you used to. And then of course, there are gonna be times where something pushes your button or something happens and you're just full blown caught up in of course, but it's gonna be more and more space over time. So it's not as if what I'm saying is just observe because you're just doomed and you're always gonna be trapped by it. Freedom is possible, but it's just that it's a patient sort of just letting it have go its way and soften and weather over time. Um, so every moment then we can, we can observe clearly is a moment that I think we should be proud of ourselves because there is nothing harder. Hmm. I don't know, maybe, okay. That's a real powerful statement. There's, it's very hard, let's just put it. It's very hard to feel attachment, to feel deep aversion and to just be with it and not identify with it. I mean, there are times where when I've just been like feeling a certain kind of powerful pull, attachment or aversion, and I literally want to squirm out of my skin. You know, I want to get up and walk out of the meditation hall because it is so uncomfortable feeling that pull and yet sort of like just watching it, you know? Um, but then in the wake of that, there can be this incredible space and you realize over time, it's worth it. And then what the interesting thing is, and this is the last thing I'm gonna say before we sit, is that a there can be a perspective shift where I think some of you, I think a number of you may already have experienced at some point because many of you have been doing this for a long time, where you realize that those moments where you are doing this, where you're feeling your attachment or you're feeling your intense dislike and just watching it, you start to realize that that's actually when practice is most powerful. And so you begin, and I don't, I'm not actually kidding when I say this, almost, and I'll just maybe, I'll, that's the first, almost to welcome those moments where something pushes your button, where some conversation you have, some event happens that really just kind of sets you off and sets off the attachment aversion of liking or disliking. And you don't like it, obviously, that's by definition, but you realize, you recognize in those moments that this is when your practice becomes most powerful, most effective. And over time, you, 
you know, you, so you enjoy those moments where like, it's just peaceful and quiet. You know, of course you enjoy that. Who wouldn't? But you realize there's those moments when you're working with attachment, aversion, liking and disliking, that the practice is actually going somewhere and it's producing the possibility of greater peace, greater equanimity over time. And so what seemed like the thing you most want to avoid in life starts to be the thing that you realize, this is my path. I used to want nothing to do with this. And I realized that if I actually want freedom, these are the moments that I need to see as my path. That is a radical shift in practice that I think took me many, many years to get to. Um, but it's, it's, it's an it's a, it's a important moment. And I just say, um, this isn't just about sucking up something that's unpleasant, you know? Okay, we're gonna sit for a bit. Are there any um, questions just of what I said before we're gonna try a little bit of this out in, in practice? And um, just please speak up or unmute if you have anything right now. Um, Jim, Marnie, is the sound coming through okay? Okay, great. Thank you. Yes, of course. So I. Oh, well, oh, sorry. Hold on a second. Um, go ahead. So I, I deal with chronic uh, digestive issues. Mm. And very often when I sit, as much as when I'm not sitting, mm. all the time, you never know when it comes. Mm -hmm. um, I have to deal with. Uh, Discomfort, mm. physical discomfort. So I was listening to you and physical discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it's unpleasant. And uh, I don't know if it was applicable to what you were saying in any way. I felt so. Um, instead of feeling, oh, this is awful, this is awful, that's trying to push, push it away, right? That's also the kind of pull mm. you talk about. Mm -hmm. Instead, just watch the uncomfortableness mm -hmm. with that apply in that way? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I'll, um, my teacher, Ezra, had autoimmune disorder where his muscles, his, his immune system would consume his own muscle tissue. And um, so there's extreme pain from that. It would come periodically in cycles that would last for months. And actually, this is what I think propelled his practice, who so eventually became a Zen teacher, because he was kind of like stagnant, you know, you know, the people who sit for a long time, they reach plateaus. And, you know, and, and I think he might have actually just been at that plateau for a long, long time. But then he got this disease. And he realized that um, if he didn't actually work more seriously with this aversion, he was going to actually go crazy. Like he, he, he thought he was going to die, he felt so depressed. And, and, angry and despairing and suicidal at different times. Um, and so he actually had to more rigorously look at this dynamic. And though the thing that actually blows my mind is one of the biggest symptoms he had was nausea. So he would actually have to observe the, dis the aversion to nausea as nausea was overcoming his body. Um, and, but because it was that or kind of go mad, you know, because what can you do, right? It's not going to go away no matter how much you wanted to. He was able to see that though this is obviously physically uncomfortable, he was adding immense layers of mental 
spiritual suffering on top of it. So you're not going to cure yourself, obviously, right? It's going to be there, but there can be a layer of um, psychological suffering that can be loosened. Again, though, the key is to be gentle because you need to not set the ideal of, oh, I'm not going to have aversion, right? Because then that'll just be another ideal. So more just really seeing carefully, what does it feel like to really not want this, you know, rather than to say, I should get over it and just accept it. That's just a positive thinking. It's not going to get us anywhere for long, right? Yeah. Okay. So let us um, sit for a bit. Okay. So... Uh, just please get back in a position for meditation. Maybe to ground yourself this time, bring your awareness to your legs, your buttocks, feel the contact that your body is making with the ground beneath you or whatever is supporting you. Open yourself up to the sounds in the environment around you. Hearing not just the sound in my voice, but whatever other sounds there may be, wherever you are. And gradually, gently bring your awareness to your breath. Feel the flow of the breath in and out of the body. And when anything pulls you away from the breath, just see it, take note of it. If it helps you to label what you're noticing, use a word like attachment or thinking or judging, or just wordlessly observe and note, and gently bring your awareness back to the breath. And the attitude that I encourage you to cultivate as we practice is one of curiosity. It's so easy to be grim about practice, like we're doing something serious, like we're working on ourselves. But actually, just watch, just be curious. Just try to learn, like, how does my mind work? 
And when you see your mind do something funky or crazy that drives you crazy, see if you can perhaps even smile at its pranks, at its quirks. One thing I didn't say in my remarks, but which I think are important, I want to say now, is we're not hunting for attachment or aversion, liking or disliking. We're not digging, trying to seek out moments when we can catch ourselves wanting or not wanting. Rather, just follow the breath with an open curiosity. And eventually, a moment of liking or disliking attachment aversion will appear. And just then notice it when it shows itself without you looking for, hunting for it. The attitude of hunting, digging, searching, it's a very aggressive attitude. It's an analytic attitude. It's not conducive to practice. Just follow the breath and notice whatever comes up. And if you don't feel any moments of aversion or attachment, then just enjoy just being.
Notice where your mind is right now. If it's lost in thought or fantasy, just notice that and gently come back to the breath. One very common experience in meditation practice is not the liking or disliking of a particular thought or sensation, but the liking or disliking of how your meditation itself is going or how you're doing. So be aware if you're identifying with judgments about this experience of practice. Would you like this moment to feel otherwise? Just see that.
Okay. Take your time, slowly open your eyes. Feel free to move your body and stretch. There are 10 minutes left and um, I just wanna leave space for any comments or questions. Um, Sylvia, please. Yeah, um, I thought this last time, and I'm still dealing with it. Um, uh, picking and choosing, you said, was what we are. Um, we do all the time when we're trying to not just let, let it be. But I'm thinking, right from when we're um, here's my analytical mind going. I'm thinking right from the day we're born, we're encouraged to pick and choose. That's how we, how we, we cry, we get something, we get food, something hurts, we cry, we're it's taken care of. So I'm thinking right from the beginning of life, we are always um, encouraged to express what we want, what we need. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's a really deep grained instinct in our, in our bodies and our, you know, we don't step, we don't touch the fire, you don't step on the nail. You're always picking and choosing. Everything you do, you're picking and choosing. So not picking and choosing is, it must be on another, it, it can't, it, I mean, I just don't understand how it cannot be happening all the time physically. And then how do we keep that from being mental? Um, so that's my question. So, I think, um, I mean, I think what we're doing here um, as a form of, of practice, um, I, I don't think it's um, right to understand it as somehow returning back to our natural state um, when it comes to biology. Um, because I think you're right, um, biologically, evolutionarily, um, there are actually very, very good reasons why we pick and choose. And in fact, why we're not even focused. Like we, we should be alert for danger. You know, um, we should be um, scanning the environment, you know, things like this. Um, so, you know, when the Buddha described practice as going against the stream, I think he didn't just mean like in terms of upbringing culture, but I think he meant something very, very deep in human nature. Um, and so, um, and I think, uh, so I think just acknowledge, yes, this is, this is going against biology and conditioning at a very, very deep level. Um, I think um, Robert Wright, this evolutionary psychologist actually has a book called Why Buddhism is Right. And, um, and his, his argument actually, which to me makes some sense. I mean, I don't, I don't, care super much about it, but I mean, I think he's right for us as far as I understand him. Just that evolution produced um, a certain kinds of uh, mental um, habits in us, which on the one hand enabled us to survive, but on the other hand, create intense suffering. You know, they go, they, like, it's the cost of our survival. Um, and, and certain spiritual traditions, Buddhism especially, have found ways to actually transcend our evolutionary 
baggage and to find a certain kind of peace, a certain higher capacity in us that goes beyond what evolution has sort of hardwired into us. Um, and so that makes more sense to me. It's not, not like babies are all innocent and pure. And if we just return to that before we were conditioned by the world, that we'd be fine. I think that's a romantic idea, right? That's not true. Um, so yeah, I would just say, but also I wanna do say that this isn't about stopping picking and choosing um, because it consistent with everything I said, there's no way to stop it. If we're human, we're going to pick and choose. The point is simply to be less caught up by it, you know, to less identify with it. So we see the urges, we see the thoughts, we see the judgment, and we don't necessarily have to buy into it. And, and just by doing that, I think we'll have many fewer of them because there's so many storylines which only go somewhere because we buy into them and then we get carried away and develop them, make them really Baroque, right? Um, like, I want this and I want this for this reason because I want to be that kind of person, then I have that kind of life and I'll be, you know, um, but just like see the first one and say, oh, I don't have to indulge in that one. And then none of the rest of the branches have to go anywhere, you know? So that's the interesting thing. It's like, sometimes when you just see a moment of judgment, like this is pleasant, I like this. Just seeing that is enough to say, okay. And then it just fades, like everything fades. But when then you buy into it, then it adds another. And then, and then suddenly you're like, you're, who knows where you are, yeah. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it does. I think that that's, uh, it's really nice. I mean, it's really nice to just, just noticing it, it's true. Then you go, oh, and then you go, yeah, yeah. like you said, like the wind was coming through. And I was like, oh, it feels so good. And then I started going, am I all, am I all into the body? Stop it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's not about that. It's just enjoy it and then go away from it. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, all, all, all of the great Zen teachers say thinking is not a problem. You know, thinking is not a problem in Buddhism. Like it's, 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 there's no, it's not about stopping the mind or getting away from your thinking. It's just not being so identified with it. That's all it is. As long as we're alive, we're going to think and want and not want. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Matthew. Yeah, no, I just wanted to have a, just comment on, on Sylvia's um, remark just then, you know, I, I think, I think the, the element of control and, you know, the picking and choosing and, you know, even though Bernie, you said that's, you know, you know, yeah, thinking isn't bad, this and that. I, I think it is just an, it's an interesting point because I think even, you know, like when it comes to the mind, I, I think we, we really try to impart a sense of control, like, especially when it comes to, like, at least this is my experience with meditation practices is like, you know, there's still like a, you know, I want to avoid these negative thoughts and I want to, you know, maybe, and, and I think it's mainly with the, with the negative thoughts, just like avoiding them. And, you know, there's, there's something profound about just like letting it happen in a world where I think, you know, as humans, we, we try to impart like a sense of control over so many things that we, like we don't have control over. And, and so I, I find that like, you know, that, that was like a really interesting experience for me. I, I feel like in this, um, in this exercise we just did, it was just like, you know, Letting it, letting it happen because I think in, in a way it's like, it, it isn't natural. Like it isn't, it isn't human. Like I think, or like it, at least for me, like, you know, I'm, I'm averse to like, you know, negative thoughts and stuff like that. Um, and then secondly, I, I think with regards to like, you know, noting that like things were, we find pleasant and things we, you know, thoughts that we find unpleasant. I think, you know, it was, it's interesting. I, I found that like last week, you know, that when we, when we were just like, you know, observing observing our thoughts and just like you know like what does that feel like 
um, that, you know, I, I think for me, like, you know, I, I think the last few months have been a lot of unpleasant thoughts going through my head. And I think that, you know, I, I picked up the technique of labeling and being just like, oh, this is just thinking and just viewing it as such. But I feel like every time that there would be an unpleasant thought would come up, I kind of would go into like a flinch mode. I'd be like panicking and be like thinking, thinking, thinking. And, and I think that prevented me from really like, you know, seeing the thought itself. And, and so I think over the past week when I was you know, trying this myself and in, in my own time. And, and then also tonight, just like somehow just, I, I think facing, facing the thought itself, you know, it's very difficult, but at least tonight I've, I found like, you know, even just like facing and, and, you know, recognizing that this is an unpleasant thought and not really identifying with it. I, I felt like, you know, there were a couple moments where I just found this profound sense of peace and stillness after it. And, and it was really, yeah, no, it, it was, it was really like pr- profound in a way. Um, and yeah, so, so that, no, that, that, that was my, my experience, just kind of stream of consciousness, consciousness, but yeah. Thank you, Matthew. Fernanda, by the way, Fernanda, when Matthew was speaking, did you hear feedback at all? No. Okay, good. I just, my mic is still on. I want to make sure. Okay, go, go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I wanted to build on what Matthew said because I related to that a lot. Like, I feel like sometimes when I meditate and I see my thoughts in an effort to not identify with the thought, I, I try to like put it away as soon as possible. Like, okay, like as soon as I notice it, I'm like, okay, like go away. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, I'm not being as aggressive, but I feel like I kind of mm-hmm. am. And so this time I was trying to like actually see the thought before I like let it go. And I had like this thought about work and I was immediately gonna put it away. Like, oh, I'm just thinking about work. And then like kind of like saw it and I was like, oh, like I'm judging myself in this thought. I'm like remembering something that happened earlier that like I kind of felt bad about and I'm judging myself in this thought. And I hadn't, like, I feel like I wouldn't have noticed it if I had, if I had just like immediately tried to put it away and kept like following the breath. Um, that was interesting I felt like it felt interesting like to like notice that not like fully identify with it and then just like let it fly keep going it's it's so great what what you guys are saying I mean just just describing the experience I think um maybe it won't resonate with everyone but I think people are going to be able to pick up on yeah and it's like Fernanda what you just said is such a good example of like uh what I was getting earlier like we say we don't have control of our mind because it goes over, but actually we have sometimes too much control, right? We, we, we know how to push the thought away as soon as we notice it. And actually this is like, it's about the opposite, like letting it come and then letting it go in its own time. Yeah, just seeing. Mary, did you have something you want to say? Yeah. Oh, you're, you're, mute, you're muted. Um, one of the words that comes to my mind (laughs) or comes to thought is it's almost, it's, it's like respecting this whole process in a very profound, it was beautiful. Your description, Matthew and Fernanda. Um, and, and because something we really respect, we don't try to control. We, 
let it be. <laughs> so it was a very helpful comments tonight. Thank you. I totally agree. Um, I think the last thing I want to say tonight, actually, it, it, it piggybacks on what Mary just said. It's um, it's harking back to what I said during the sitting about not going hunting, you know, mm -hmm. for want moments of wanting. Because I think as soon as you know, it's it's very tempting, and I've, I've fallen prey to this myself. So I speak from experience that when you start sort of noticing thoughts in the way that we're doing here you can start to want to get to the bottom of things and like, okay, what am I, re what's really going on there? And, and I think that um, respect is a really good word, Mary. It's like, that's not the way that you would listen lovingly and compassionately to a friend who was sharing what was going on with them, right? You don't go like trying to figure them out and like, okay, so what's really driving them and like, what's their problem, right? But we often approach our own minds in this way as if we want to make it divulge its problems and secrets and like fix it. Um, it's a very subtly aggressive, it's, a, it's, it's classic, like I want to fix you, help you, but I'm gonna do it. Like, you know, it's, um, so, um, I, so I just love Mary, the way that you describe what Matthew and Fernando was saying it was like respect, another word for love, you know, another word for just open listening. That's what noting is. It's, it's a form of deep listening to our own minds, you know? Um, yeah, I'm not getting caught away, caught away by it, but listening, letting it reveal what it wants to reveal when it wants to reveal it, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, so I didn't do this last week and I actually kind of regret it. So could we sit for half a minute together before we sign off? Okay, all right. Um, so please just, um, Sit in whatever way feels good to you for 30 to 60 seconds and I'll signal it's over. Okay, my friends. Good night, everyone. Wonderful to see you all here and there. Yeah. Um, Marnie, Jim, others, like, is this going to be okay? Is this, I mean, even with me masked? Okay, I, I'm glad. Okay. Good night, everyone. Hi, Bernie. Thank, Thank you. Hi. Hi, thanks. Hi, Bernie. Bye, everyone. Okay.